Welcome to Mission 150, the podcast that tells stories from 150 years of Seventh-day Adventist mission to the world. To find out more about the mission of the Adventist Church today, go to AdventistMission.org. That's AdventistMission.org. We're so glad to have you with us again on Mission 150 with me, David Trim. And with me, Sam Nevis. In episode 14, Dr. Michael Sukupa was here. He was our guest. And we talked to him about the start of Adventist mission in what was then called Rhodesia, today's countries of Zimbabwe and Zambia. Today we're returning to Southern Africa, but we're also going to be looking at East Africa. Uh, what are we going to be focusing on this episode? Well, David, that's with you. Sam, we're looking at more stories of missionaries who risked serious illness and death so that people could hear about Jesus and so that the Adventist cause could advance. And we're going to start in July of 1894. On July 5th of 1894, a party of seven Seventh-day Adventist missionaries arrived in what was then the capital of the newest part of the British Empire, the settlement of Bulawayo, in what was the British were calling Rhodesia, which had been conquered from the indigenous inhabitants, the Indabeli, who the British called Matabili. The Adventists who came from South Africa established a mission station at Seleucy, in Matabili land in present-day Zimbabwe. Most of them returned soon after to South Africa, leaving a South African layman, Fred Sparrow, in charge of the property. Twelve months later, in July 1895, a second party of missionaries arrived after a long wagon journey across Bechuana land, today's Botswana. It included Elder George B. Tripp, who became the first superintendent of the Seleucid Mission, his wife, Mary, and 12-year-old son, George Jr. Mary had only married George Sr. in March, immediately before departing America for South Africa. This was a son from a previous marriage. Okay. And as we discussed on previous episodes, many missionaries married right before they left to go as, as, as missionaries on foreign service. Other American missionaries in that 1895 party included a 60-year-old medical missionary, Dr. A.S. Carmichael, along with William H. Anderson, known as Harry, and his wife, Nora, both of whom were fresh out of college, so just in their early 20s, and they were going, though they didn't know it, they were going to spend most of their lives in Africa as missionaries. There were also some South Africans, Fred Sparrow and his brother Chris, and Chris's wife, Mahala, who helped manage the mission farm. A photograph survives of Chris Sparrow, which we'll put on the video version. He's pictured with some of the local farm laborers and their families who helped them work the new mission farm. In 1897, another American missionary family reached Seleucy. Frank Armitage, his wife Anna, and their 10-year-old Violet, this time they journeyed by donkey cart instead of ox wagon. So to, just to get to Seleucy was a major undertaking. But by the end of the year, 1897, the railroad had been extended from South Africa to Bulawayo. And actually, in January 1898, the president of the General Conference, Ola Olson, visited Seleucid, the first time a General Conference president visited Africa. And he traveled most of the way by train and then, of course, took a wagon cart from Bulawayo to Seleucid, but that wasn't so far. Now, at the time the Armitages made their more arduous journey, Frank was 32 and Annie was 38. They had been married then 13 years, but they were not going to make it to a 14th anniversary. Because in 1898, as young Harry Anderson wrote to church leaders, an epidemic, almost a plague of malaria, swept across Rhodesia. According to Harry's report, people were, he said, dying everywhere. 
In Bulawayo, the hospital is full, and the doctor said he did not believe there was a well man in the town. And Seleucy was not spared. Dr. Carmichael contracted malaria on February 14, and two weeks later, he died. George Tripp Sr. conducted the funeral, and the next day, he collapsed. On March 7, he died and was buried. He had served at the mission just three years. Are they sure it was malaria? It's a good question. I mean, these days, who, who knows? There were all kinds of epidemic fevers that were common, but malaria was pretty well known. Because you need a lot of mosquitoes very determined to cause <laughs> that kind of, of impact, yeah. you know, in a large population. Yeah, it's, it's I mean, it, it was very bad. Um, it may have been a particularly virulent strain of malaria that, that was being be transmitted. Um, but yes, there, there were prophylactics against malaria that were known, and so it must have been a particularly deadly strain of malaria. Um, so on March 7, the same day George Tripp died, Chris Sparrow's young daughter, whose name is not even known, died. Her mother Mahala survived, but later was laid to rest by the side of her daughter in the cemetery at Seleucie. And on April 8, George Tripp Jr. died and was buried next to his father, who he outlived by just one month. On the video version, we'll put some photos of their graves and the cemetery at Seleucie, where father and son and many other missionaries lie buried. Seleucie is a sobering place to visit when you see the graveyard and you see just how many church workers were laid to rest there prematurely. We have a hospital there now, don't we? I think. I think so, yes. But, and back then, of course, the only doctor had already was the first one to die. And he was in his 60s, right? And he was in his right. 60s, so he was more susceptible. Yeah. And, yeah. But, but not at this point, because it seems that Everyone every family seems yeah. to have been affected. Yeah. No, that's this. right. Nora Anderson, Harry's wife, the widowed Mary Tripp, and the three members of the Armitage family were all suffering badly with fever, and it was decided to send them all by train to Cape Town, where the climate would better, and there was an Adventist hospital and or sanitarium, and they could be treated. And it's not near, and it's not an easy journey either. No, it was going to take them several days, even by train, because the distances are so vast. Um, Annie Armitage never reached Cape Town because she was so ill that she was forced to stop in Kimberley, where she passed away, having been a missionary for less than a year. Eventually, Frank Armitage and Mary Tripp, widower and widow, found consolation in each other, and the next year, 1899, they were married, and they actually returned to Seleucie to serve there. I, I don't... Look, it, it seems that our episodes start really well and exciting, and then they turn dark <laughs> and depressive pretty quickly. Um, obviously, their commitment is, is unbelievable. It's profound, yes. Because it's one thing for you to throw yourself into the deep, and then the people that you know and love die, but you get together with others that also are grieving and you decide to go back to, to go the back. same place yes. to keep trying. And, and it's not even clear exactly what they were trying. I mean, obviously, to proclaim the three angels' messages, to establish a mission there and to make disciples and, and, and to grow. But the time frame is never in decades. It's, there is an urgency to it, not yes. only for the second coming, but for their own lives that might end at any point. Yes, and they must have felt that. Having witnessed what they'd witnessed, they must have felt, you know, our time is short. Um, hmm. Harry and Nora Anderson were reunited. Um, Nora survived. And they both, and so she went back to Seleucie where Harry had stayed, and they raised a daughter there, Naomi. 
and she lived, but the cemetery at Seleucia, as I say, it's a, a silent and potent witness to the mortality rate of missionaries in Matabili land in the 1890s, not just the 1890s, beyond as well. And later, a South African Adventist poet memorialized what she called Seleucia's silent village. Hmm. And she, what she writes evokes the spirit of sacrifice that gave rise to today's hundreds of thousands of Zimbabwean Seventh-day Adventists. She, here's just a, a short excerpt from it. A son and father rest there, the dates two months apart. A mother lies near daughter, as though still of one heart. Some large trees stand on guard there, inside the sheltering fence. The sleeping ones are waiting for Christ to call them hence. That would be quite a celebration as they're all in the same place. Yes, yes. It will be a memorable day. Now, Harry Anderson, who was for a time the sole American left at Seleucia, wrote a report for the church paper in America in which he stressed that the epidemic had carried off not only missionaries, but also local believers. And so we have to remember that. But it was the local believers about whom he was most concerned, not merely their mortal lives, but their eternal futures. This is what he wrote, Sam. Oh, for men and women to give their lives, if need be, for this people. We need young men and women, those who can stand the change of climate, who can easily acquire the language, who are strong in faith, and who do not easily yield to discouragement. We need those who are willing to leave their country, kindred, and homes to lead others to the promised land. Here, here's the part that I've been meditating recently. Are we asking too little? from people. You know, I've I've been I've been thinking of this because we often settle for just one. We have each one reach one, you know, kind of thing. Yes. Like look, just do something. It doesn't matter how small it is, just do something. That isn't the spirit that we see here. Here is we need young men and women that are willing to put their lives in the line for these people. Yes. There is a clear... There is people who otherwise won't know about Jesus. That's right. There is an us and them, which often we try to minimize, and there is a place to minimize us and them because we want to see each other as equal. But in this case, we have something that they don't. Yes. And we need courageous young people that are willing to face the climate, face the disease, not easily given to discourage. Yes. <laughs> That's a great line, isn't it? <laughs> it is going to be rough. Yes. But if you're that kind of person, then we need you in the mission field. Wouldn't this be a great thing to recover? Absolutely, Sam, 100%. Um, on the other hand, we have to remember that even then, not everybody went as a missionary, and not everybody's going to be able to go as a missionary today. Not everybody's circumstances will permit. Not everybody has the spiritual gifts that lend themselves to it. Um, and so the idea of each one reach one is still, you know, that everyone should be involved, total member involvement. Yes. Um, and it's better for you to do something than to do nothing. Right. But there are some, there are some who, that God is calling for that kind of sacrifice. Yes. And we mustn't be shy of putting that out there also. There are still places that are dangerous for multiple reasons, and we need those missionaries. Definitely. You know, there, are, there are still places that if are dangerous or at least very difficult. And the, you know, that line, do not easily yield to discouragement, that um, applies. will be applicable. Um, you know, there are countries in the Middle East and North Africa especially, Islamic countries, um, where any kind of work may have to be done from a different country. 
because there's simply no freedom of religion and so you may need a missionary and I'm thinking of actual countries we won't name them in order not to endanger anybody but there are actual there are Middle Eastern countries today where there's a missionary working in the country next door or a country nearby which is a slightly more liberal laws and it's okay for them to operate there and they work by sending literature by by subtle means by and then by the the actual church members witnessing and if they win souls which they're doing they have to fly to another country in order to be baptized i have i have had conversations with people that are very discouraged by that reality you i can think of north korea and other countries that are closed still but then i am encouraged when i think of the former soviet union mm. that blocked the growth of the gospel with an iron wall that could not be crossed and god has a way of taking away barriers when the time is right it seems because at some point without much anticipation by anybody no one could have predicted the berlin wall would fall and eventually mm, the soviet right. union would fall 10 years before that it was even impossible to fathom that even even less i visited with my family visited moscow and east berlin in 1985 and there was Just not a few years before there that. was not a sign that anything was going to change and 5 years later uh eastern europe had had been freed and within another year the Soviet Union has ended and said you have a series of of independent nations Russia still existed but so it happened so rapidly it was extraordinary and unforeseeable we don't know how god will open those countries but we need to be ready and yes. we need to do our best as much as we possibly can with the opportunities that we have now um in and we, multiple parts of the world and we need to have people undergoing training so that they could be so to speak parachuted in very quickly if the opportunity arose i have um i have been told when i was last in south korea that there there is a network already in place f- not just for adventists but multiple churches that as soon as those um the barriers open for north korea they know exactly where to go mm. and they have funding and they're ready they know the missionaries that are going to this town and that town and this town and, mm. you know so I, i think there is something about the faith that this message will be proclaimed to every human being alive and if there are barriers today they will not be there forever uh, because there is a prophetic mandate for us to do it yes but it will take the kind of missionaries that we are looking at here yes and and it requires it 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 needs people and they could be of any age but particularly you know young people are still particularly applicable because they're more flexible they're they're mentally more flexible they may not have the same commitments in terms of family and 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 others they're better in health often um there's going to still be that need but what you know what's so striking to me sam and we've seen it in previous episodes is that when missionaries die and in this case we're not talking about a mission we're we're talking about a number of people dying and then even more of the local believers um those who survive turn it into an opportunity to recruit and we've seen that on other occasions too it's like okay these people have fallen who's going to be next yeah. and there always were people who were willing to be next because worse than death is a meaningless death the only thing worse than death is a meaningless death yes. you died for nothing yes they gave their lives for nothing so they they took us 3 inches closer to having a mission there let's right. not 
have their lives be wasted? Who's going to take it further? Right. No, that's exactly right. Now, missionaries had to go to other parts of Africa as well, of course. We've talked about West Africa previously and into the early 20th century. But uh, in 1903, the German Union Conference took a bold and expensive step. They established a new mission in what was then the German colony of East Africa. It was called German East Africa. Today, it's part of the country of Tanzania. Uh, now, this is a rousing step for Adventists in Germany because the church in their country was committed to foreign mission. Among those moved to serve was a man called Christian Wunderlich, who was a layman, not a pastor, and he was a skilled craftsman in his 50s. But because Adventist missionaries, when they went out, created farms and workshops because they tried to teach people uh, new methods of agriculture that would enable them to be self-sufficient, mm -hmm. uh, as well as teaching them to read so that they could learn the Bible, um, to, to educate them in the fullest sense. Um, there was a place for people like Christian Wunderlich. On February 20, 1904, he sailed from Hamburg on the steamship Kaiser, part of a group of missionaries, the second German Adventist party to go to German East Africa. On arrival at the Paré mission, Christian assisted in the construction of the mission buildings and with running a steam traction engine, of course, which is high-tech yeah. for the time. Right. And so it's interesting that even with the second party out, they're actually installing a steam traction engine to help with agriculture. Um, of course, today, young boys find steam traction engines exhilarating and exciting and extraordinary. Um, I, I would have thought it was the same even back then when they were, when they were less common. So Christian was in charge of running that. Sometime in 1905, Christian and a missionary couple were stricken with an unknown illness, but serious. And we've talked about this on previous episodes. At this time, of course, Westerners haven't yet managed to work out all the tropical diseases there are in the world. Some like uh, malaria and typhoid are relatively well known, but others, they just... Tropical fever. Tropical or fever, fever, that's right. Just Or just fever. And you have to say, well, what could it be? It could be so many things. Um, so the three missionaries returned to Germany, where the husband and wife survived their illness, but Christian turned out to have a fatal sickness. He was treated at Friedensau Sanitarium, and he declared, I'm going to return to Paré. And in fact, a colleague wrote, going back to Africa was his chief concern, even during his illness, as his whole soul had been stirred by the needs of the African peoples. Coming back to your point, these people had something that Africans needed, which was to hear the gospel. They may have thought they needed other things as well, and today, being somewhat more progressive, we wouldn't necessarily say they did, but we can still today say, yes, they needed the gospel, and if there weren't going to be missionaries going from North America and Europe and Australia to mission fields, then people weren't going to hear. Mm -hmm. So Christian, his chief concern was returning to Africa because his whole soul had been stirred by the needs of the African people. But on October 31, 1905, he died. He was the first German missionary to East Africa to die. And he was buried in the cemetery at Friedensau near the mission school, what today is Friedensau Adventist University. And here's the thing, Sam. His tomb and the Germ president of the German Union, Ludwig Conradi, described it as a modest tombstone. 
His tombstone was sited in, lo in a location where it would be seen by students of the college as they went from their dormitories to the school buildings. And Conradi wrote that this was done deliberately. They deliberately placed it there. Now, you might think, why on earth would you deliberately put it where the students can see it and sort of say, my goodness, you know, there but for the grace of God go I. I'm not going to have anything to do with that. But what Conradi wrote is that it was done to remind our students of the spirit that it takes to build up missions and move them to devote their lives to the noble work of the self-denying missionary. That is amazing. You want to see what your future holds? <laughs> Here it is. Every day, look at that. Yes, this could be you. And yet, again, there's no shortage of Germans willing to go as missionaries, initially to German East Africa, later also to, to West Africa. The Germans are given responsibility for, um, for Liberia. Again, if you have a tragedy, which is an early death of someone who has great potential, that is in itself a tragedy. But, the, but worse than a tragedy is to live, again, a meaningless life. Yes. You know, and not to have a purpose, and it's, not to, to, yeah. It's interesting. C.S. Lewis says that it's meaninglessness that makes a tragedy. If the death is, has meaning, it's not a tragedy. If it's meaningless, it's a tragedy, because it's meaningless. And uh, Wow, that, that changes things. So this is the opposite of a tragedy. There, yes. there is somebody who, who gave his heart, whose heart beat in the same frequency as God's. Yes, and this is that's a, beautifully put. It's a profound notion that you would leave your home, just about the most important thing that we're looking for is home. Yes. And to, and to love people that are so profoundly different than you, mm. and to see value in them to the point that your life is worth giving because of them. The gospel can do that, but I can't think of anything else that has that power to transcend all things, all, all barriers, from a German to an East African. Um, but that's the power of the gospel. And I, and I love this. Here's a tomb. Here's your future. Yes. You want to see what your future looks like? This, this is what you signed up for. And we want to make it clear that every day, contemplate it. That's, yes. that's deep. Yes. But there were students who saw that and who went themselves as missionaries. So again, um, but it's you know, it's the realism. Nobody's trying to sugarcoat it. Mm -hmm. Nobody's trying to pretend. Is trying to sweep this under the carpet. Instead, they're putting it front and center. And again, it's because of of your point. This missionary has taken us a little bit closer to our goal. Now we need somebody who can pick it up and do it. But also be aware that this is what you're signing up for. But I believe, Sam, that we have young people today who would be willing to risk their lives yes. for, for the cause of the gospel. Yes. As, as Philvia put it in a previous episode, we have more people willing to go than we have opportunities for them to go to. Yes. Now, in many cases, those are going to opportunities where their life won't be in danger. But, you know, there, there are places... Thankfully, in most places, yes. that's the case. <laughs> thankfully, in, in, thankfully, in most places... And, you know, if you're work doing pioneer missionary work, at the very least, you can be worn down by an, um, a demanding routine and, and, and need, be in dire need of rest and relaxation. Um, so that you, you could have a stress-related illness or exhaustion. Uh, but most places today, there's not, a, there's not a danger. Though there are missionary, there have been missionaries to Chad who've lost their young children to malaria in Chad in, in the last 10 years. Um, but what is true is that even though they mightn't face their own mortality through illness, 
is that they could face persecution. And again, if, and this is one reason we need missionaries, Sam, because for local people in, say, the Middle East or parts of, of, of India, Central Asia, North, and, and indeed West Africa, um, to witness to their faith, they're going to face execution. Or at the very least, imprisonment and possibly torture. Mm -hmm. um, if a Westerner goes and does it, they may, they may end up in a, in a terrible situation. But it's less certain that they it, will. It's indeed, because the chances are they'll have an unpleasant and an uncomfortable 48 hours. And be extradited and or be, sent and back. Be, and, be, and be expelled from the country. Mm -hmm. and, and then that's it. So this is one reason we actually do still need missionaries. People say, you know, I, I, I know people have said to me, do we still need missionaries today? Can't local people do it better? And of course, in many cases, they can. We wouldn't, for example, send missionaries to Tanzania today. Because yeah, they're very are, strong. <laughs> the church Adventist is, presence. The yeah. very strong Adventist presence there. And they can do evangelism and literature evangelism and witnessing. They can do it better than a, a, a foreigner can do it. But, the, but, but in other places, it, there is still the need for the missionary to, to, take, to take chances and to take dangerous risks. In fact, it is now time for the Tanzanians to do what the Germans did. Once they have enough strength, they're the ones who should send missionaries to other places. Yes. And 100 percent. And, and of course, that is happening as you, you and I have the, the privilege as part of our jobs to, to travel quite widely and, and see the church in different parts of the world. And I think you, like me, will have found Brazilians as missionaries, Koreans as missionaries in particular, yes. Filipinos as missionaries, Mexicans serving as missionaries. But uh, there's also, it's also the case now that in parts of Europe, Europe today is post-Christian. What once was Christendom and sent missionaries out is today post-Christian, and you know God has been almost forgotten. Um, but there are large communities of immigrants from the countries that Europe that were colonized by the European nations, and there's actually a need in some cases for people to go back for the missionary to be for the missions process to be reversed, mm -hmm. and so to have Nigerians and Ghanaians, for example, go to Britain where there's very large expatriate Nigerian and Ghanaian communities, whereas it was, it was British missionaries going there that actually enabled the, the church to become extremely strong in Ghana and Nigeria. Um, and one could find other examples as well. Missionaries from the South Pacific going to Australia and New Zealand, for example, swapping what had happened in, in the past. Um, so there is, there is still a need for people to go internationally. And to, and to serve interculturally. Even in today's world where in, in many places the church is strong, but in many parts of the world, and we don't shy away from this, the church is weak. There are, at times, we have colleagues who only like to tell feel-good stories about mission, <laughs> and we've discussed this. The problem with that is that people think, well, the work's nearly done. I can be relaxed about this. No, not quite. I, I had a, a colleague recently tell me about an experience of mission. He said, well, we had good success, and we also had bad success. And <laughs> it doesn't matter what it is, it was successful. Sometimes it isn't successful. I, I see myself in there in a way, David, because I'm, I was born in Brazil and I considered my land to be England. It's as if God sent me to England as a missionary from yes. Brazil. That's how I've always felt. In fact, my, it's a very strange thing. I, my wife is British. Um, and recently I went to visit my father's grave in Brazil with my eldest. Mm. 
and we were contemplating if Jesus doesn't come and I die, where would I want to be buried? Yeah. Where would you want to be buried? My then? immediate response, I didn't even think about it, Watford. In England. In yes, England. Yes. That's it. I, I, and and I, then I went to understand why that was my instinct. And I feel that God has put a love for me for the people in England that is, it's not mine. It is, it is something that is, that there is a spiritual dimension. And when I hear these stories, it, it, it kind of makes sense. You know, it's it, the people that I would dream if only they understood God's plans for them. Mm. Yet they spend most of their days anxious and depressed, looking for things that will never fulfill them because they do not know the source of life and, and the potential future they have in, in Christ. And so there is a, a constant dream of finding ways of, of communicating that to them. Um, so in a way, I fit this Southern Hemisphere to the Northern Hemisphere yes. kind of reversed mission. But discouragement is a constant. I, as a pastor in England for 11 years, I can tell no, you. There was the a lot of discouragement. Feel, you know, you, you've got nice health care. You, you don't lack food. You know, that's all fine. And there aren't diseases, tropical diseases that will kill you. Maybe the gray sky for six months of the year. <laughs> but no. Uh, but there is a, a general sense of discouragement that you try different things and most of what you try does not work. Yes. And, and you're constantly faced with rejection. And so, no, there's no persecution per se, although now some would argue there is some, but there is no persecution as you would understand it in these stories. And yet it, is, it can be very discouraging. And that still applies. You, you should not yield easily uh, to discouragement. So Yes, there's still the need for people who can remain positive. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think for many missionaries, um, even ones who go to parts of the world that are, that are, are pleasant and, and safe, um, you've still left behind your family, your friends, your your own culture, and difficulty and discouragement is is a is a constant. Yeah. Um, let's tell one or maybe two more stories. Please. Back in Southern Africa, in April 1912, a man called Charles Lindsay Bowen, who was always known as Lynn for from his second name, um, had arrived in South Africa in April 1912 with his wife Ida who was four years older than he was. He was 31, she was 35. And their daughters, Louise and Ethel, who were eight and six. Where was he from again? He's from America. Okay. And for those watching on the video version on AdventistReview.tv, you can see pictures of Ida and Ethel taken for their U.S. passport applications a few years later. We also do have a, a picture of, of Lynn Bowen himself. The Bowen family took up residence in Rhodesia at Tungvezi Mission in Manakaland which like Seleucia is in today's Zimbabwe, but to the east of Matabili land. So it's, okay. it's still in Rhodesia and still in what today would be called Zimbabwe, but well to the east of Seleucia. Um, a contemporary photo of Lynn shows that he was a handsome young man. In his hometown, he was remembered as, this is a quote, a young man of pronounced personality, an earnest Christian, and one who made lasting friends wherever he was known. But in 1913, so they've only been there a year, mm. There was an outbreak of smallpox at Tsongvezi, and Lin contracted the disease. The problem here, and, and perhaps it's, we, we don't want to tread on too much on controversial territory, but he hadn't been vaccinated. Mm. There was, of course, a, a, a vaccination for, for smallpox. Already at that time? Oh, yes. Yeah, in the 18th century. 
Um, they, in fact, the word vaccine comes from the Latin for cow because people had worked out that if somebody contracted cowpox, they acquired immunity from smallpox. And cowpox is relatively mild, so it would make you a little bit ill. Vaca. Vaca for cow, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, it's in Portuguese as well. Oh, I did not so that's that. where vaccine comes from. So the idea of, of a vaccine for smallpox was well known, but for whatever reason, Lynn had never had it. And so he contracts the disease. And his wife, Ida, later wrote to Lynn's uncle, he had complications which made it very difficult and painful for him to breathe and swallow which is a horrible thought if you know thinking about painful even to breathe now chris sparrow who you might remember we talked about yes. earlier at mm -hmm. at Salusi. chris sparrow arrived he was and he helped to treat others at the mission including louise and ethel who were suffering with smallpox the two young girls and he and they were able to pull through but it was too late for lynn bowen who endured agonies before his final passing and on june 2 1913 Lynn died age 32 at the mission where he'd only served a year. But here's the thing, and we can tell we're getting into the 20th century now, because Tsongvesi was connected to the telegram. And the next day, news of his death was received in America, where it was actually the time of the 1913 General Conference session. And Lynn's uncle actually worked in the General Conference Secretariat. And so... Ida sent a telegram to the United States um, with the simple but deeply sad message, my husband died yesterday at 1 p.m. And the next day they receive that and they read it out at the 1913 General Conference session and take a moment to pray for the, for the family. Wow. So we're beginning to get a little bit more of a modern sense now that whereas it took months for the first missionaries to get to Seleucy, and then by four years later, they have the train to Bulawayo, and now they actually, you can send word of the death of a missionary to his family in the United States and have it arrive the next day. And we have a, a, a culture and a history of using new technology, whatever that may be, in whatever way possible, to do, to fulfill the mission. Uh, yes. And to, especially in the areas of communication, be it physical, the train and the roads and what have you, and the technology itself. Yes. Um, yeah. And of course, what they do at the general conference session is make an appeal for more people to serve as missionaries, for people to yeah. volunteer to go to take up the fallen standard uh, yeah. that, that Lynn Bowen has laid down. And the review is the main vehicle of communication that keeps the brethren, it the, is the, the family together, correct? The Review and Herald, or often just known as the Review, today known as the Adventist Review, yes, that was the main paper. Uh, subscribed to by probably a majority of church members in North America. Um, but there were also, at that time, from what we can tell, most church members also would have subscribed to their union paper. Or in some even, some conferences had their own papers. And obituaries would often appear not only in the review, but in the union paper or conference paper as well. Mm. But yes, people are, are, are reading about, people know what happens in the mission field, because they're reading the obituaries and the descriptions of, of missionaries who've died and often in, a, in, a, in, in unpleasant circumstances, painful and difficult circumstances, agonizing circumstances. And they are very interested in what happens to these missionaries. Yes. I presume they may know some of them by name if they write articles or if, if, if they know at least of their... Yeah, of their very, often, very often the missionaries would write articles that themselves appeared in the review. And so people might have, you know, in some cases might have read an article by a missionary or their spouse who died 
um, and say, okay, I, I recognize that. Um, and giving permission is also very, very elevated in this period. Adventists give more per capita for mission in North America in the early 20th century than any other Protestant denomination. Why are we less interested in the lives of missionaries today? And are we? That, that's the first question. Do you perceive that we are? Is it, is it because it's a common thing more than it used to be then? Um, is it because we can't talk about many of the missionaries we send to the really difficult places? A combination of all of these? What's your feeling for that? My sense is that most people are still very interested in missionaries. Um, but for whatever reason, we've gotten out of the habit of telling their stories as much as we used to. Um, and it's partly because today missionaries tend to do very safe jobs. They tend to be sent to be teachers or and doctors or administrators. Which isn't as exciting, I suppose. Which isn't as exciting as somebody who's working on the front line. And of course, back in the day, even if you were a teacher or a doctor, you were working in, in, in an isolated mission field, you didn't have a, a cushy job. You were, you were, and you it was were, an adventure it, in, in every, by every sense of the word. Absolutely, and, and you might be literally weeks or even months from, uh, from, from the nearest outpost mm -hmm. of civilization. So I think today the stories just aren't as exciting, and where they are, very often we can't talk about them too freely because it would endanger local believers. It, it would be dangerous for the missionaries too um, because they're working in or for countries which have massive persecution against Christians, and we have to be very careful what we, what we say. But there are still quite a lot of missionaries working in difficult circumstances, um, and we could tell their stories more, and I think people respond very well. Mm -hmm. I think when, when I have the opportunity to travel and speak at camp meetings, for example, or, or various regional days of fellowship and so forth, and I very often tell stories about the history of the church's missions, and people are always fascinated. People love to hear the stories. So yeah. I think there is still the same interest. Perhaps we just have to do better in telling the story. And let's tell one more story. Let's go. Before we end, sometimes, sadly, it wasn't missionaries who died, it was their children. In 1908, Samuel Konigmarker, an American missionary, mailed a truly tragic postcard to Tyler Bowen in the General Conference Secretariat. In April 1908, Samuel, who was 30, and his 28-year-old wife, Ruth, had sailed from New York, and they arrived at Malamulo Mission Station in British Central Africa, as it was then called, which is today's nation of Malawi. They arrived there on July 15. So they set out on April, so it takes them three months to get to Malamulo, where today there is an Adventist hospital and an, still an Adventist mission station, and it's a, the center for Adventist work in much of Malawi. But back then it was isolated. And actually soon after, they moved to Matandani, which was even more isolated than Malamulo. Their first child, a son, Samuel Jr., was born in Matandani in October 1908, but in December 18, Samuel Sr. recorded his son's passing, and he wrote this to Bowen on a postcard, a postcard that he must have brought with him because it has a home, an image of his home state of Pennsylvania. We have it in the GC archives. Wow. And on it he writes, Dear brother, our little boy died last night with fever and an acute attack of indigestion. We buried him today. We will miss him much. Respectfully, S. Konigmarker. So we have that in the General Conference archives, this incredibly poignant document. Um, and as we've discussed before, 
you know, this is the Victorian era, this is the era when people don't show emotion very much, and it, it's a very, on the face of it, you might say it's an almost heartless document, but I think you can penetrate beneath the, ro the, the words to the emotion beneath. Indeed. Our little boy died last night, we buried him today, we will miss him so much. David, do you think that had an impact in the general conference leadership that kept sending missionaries? And you get my point. You're about to vote a family that goes. Yes, yes. You've just received that postcard, and you can't help but wonder if the children of this new family that you are sending, if they will make it. Well, interestingly, the General Conference Executive Committee actually vote um, to send an expression of sympathy. So Tyler Bowen, who's in the Secretariat, shares this news with them, and it's in the minutes that they vote to send an expression of sympathy. Hmm. Um, so in one sense, church leaders do respond. Um, and no doubt Konigmarker appreciated the, the sentiment, but he can't have done much to ease his pain or his wife Ruth's pain. Um, did GC leaders think perhaps we shouldn't be doing this? If so, they never minuted. They always seemed to, to feel um, we're privileged, we live these privileged lives, and we're privileged because we have the gospel and we have the prophetic truth of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. It's up to us to give something back to the world. Um, and of course, they never. we don't conscript anyone as a missionary. No. Everyone who goes is a volunteer. But you, you, you do have to wonder if at times one, uh, uh, somebody in the GC leadership thinks, maybe we shouldn't be doing this. Um, or, or at least, in the very least, they must have felt the heavy heart as they made decisions. They, they, right? they, knew, they knew at this period when they're sending people out that there is a high risk for the person going. And, and, and they're aware of that. There's no question, but they're aware of it. Because very often, the first note of somebody's death will be a brief note from W.A. Spicer, who was the GC secretary, in the review saying, today we receive word that such and such a person has passed away, and then later a fuller report will appear. Mm -hmm. But so the GC secretariat is receiving the first news, and so Spicer, who of course is the absolute champion of Adventist mission, with A.G. Daniels, who's the president as well, uh, very much, but Spicer's the absolute champion of this. He knows that when they vote in the executive committee to send somebody as a missionary to a foreign country, and especially in Latin America, Africa, or Asia, that um, it's a dangerous business. This isn't a game to them. No. It's very clear. It isn't a marketing strategy. It isn't a a corporate operation. It isn't a, a, an entrepreneur spirit. This is the most important thing, the most important message ever given, and we must deliver it. Yes. And whatever cost that God brings us to bear is worth it. Yes. And, of course, we all die, and a meaningful death, as you alluded to earlier, is... is honorable. Is honorable, yes. yeah. and, and, and they believe that the, the next thing that person will see is, is Christ at his second coming. The sad thing about the Konigmarkers is they had three more sons, Arthur, James, and Joseph, born in the mission field, and James and Joseph both were buried there. So they had three more sons. Um, so you can imagine when, they, when Ruth became pregnant, she must have wondered, is, is this one going to live? One of them, Arthur, does live. Um, and the, the extraordinary thing is the Konigmarkers continue in Africa, serving selflessly, and in fact, it was 14 years before they even took a furlough back to America. They spent their lives in pioneering work in remote 
and difficult locations, constantly pushing the boundaries of mission forward. They could have taken, you know, a, asked for a, a, a more comfortable position back in South Africa, but they always want to be pushing the boundaries forward. In 1934, while serving in Barotsi land, which today is a part of Zambia, Ruth fell ill. She was taken to Cape Town to Claremont Sanitarium for treatment, but she died there in September 29. And on hearing the news, a senior church leader wrote of Samuel and Ruth, their willingness to go and live under difficult conditions has been an inspiration to many of our missionaries. So other missionaries know that the conning markers are always out there on the front line and their example, their self-sacrificial ministry is, a, is, a, is, a, is an example to others and inspires others. If they are willing to do that, I will do this. And actually Samuel, after Ruth's funeral, returns to the far north mm. and worked another six years before retiring. His health, and from what we can tell, even his mental equilibrium was broken. He had served 32 years as a missionary, burying four of his family in African soil. And the question might be why, and the reason is because he loves the people. And we know that the Konigmarkers were actually criticized by other missionaries in the 1920s for being too close to the local people. What does that mean? <laughs> it, it, well, you know, we're talking about, and sadly, countries that had were, would soon have apartheid as a legal system and had racial prejudice very prevalent in them. And in, in, in the winter of 1934, a white church leader in South Africa wrote that Samuel could not be placed in charge of European work. That would be the more comfortable post back in South Africa. Mm -hmm. He couldn't be placed in charge of European work because his whole life has been given to the work of the primitive native tribes. So mm. he's no longer acceptable for a sophisticated white constituency. That's very interesting. Because he's gotten so used to working for the, the primitive native people. Today, we wouldn't use terms like that. Um, but it was meant as, and, and of course, what was meant as a reproach to us sounds like praise. This sounds is, like Jesus. <laughs> this, is, this is high praise, isn't it? You know, that he's yeah. so willing to work among these people. Um, and a church leader wrote when he died, he wanted to get out among the raw heathen. Again, we wouldn't use that terminology today. But that was Samuel's point of view. These are people who don't know Jesus. These are people who haven't heard the good news. And if my family and I, if we don't go and spend the time there, they won't ever. They won't ever. So I am willing to do whatever it takes. Thank you. Well, thank you again for joining us in this episode of Mission 150. Please keep watching on AdventistReview.tv, on the Seventh-day Adventist Church's YouTube channel, or listening on your favorite podcast platform. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please share it with your friends. If you want to know more about Adventist missionary work and missionaries today, go to AdventistMission.org. That's AdventistMission.org. And if you want to find mission opportunities today, then you go to VividFaith.com. We will be back next week with more on the inspiring history of Adventist mission around the world. Music